Record rain and snowstorms in California are leaving people stranded. We hear from a local sheriff about what he fears most. The scary thing is, is, you know, there may be further casualties we're going to find in the coming days when the snow does melt. For Saturday, March 11th, this is All Things Considered. Martin. Also this hour, we hear about a lawsuit against three women for helping another get access to abortion pills. We intend to get further well beyond uh, those who may have directly provided the pill to the, to the mother of the, of the child. Uh, certainly, we want to get to this whole network. We'll also talk about how to elevate your St. Patrick's Day game. You know you want to. So I think it's about using your ingredients and cooking them well. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. California is dealing with intense storms again today that led to the Pajaro River breaching overnight. Officials are warning thousands of people to evacuate. The levee broke amid heavy rains and strong gusty winds. Monterey County officials say they conducted dozens of rescues from the area. Those heavy rains also have led to flooding in other communities. Ashley Richley is the spokesperson of the Tulare County Sheriff's Office in Central California. You can see widespread flooding, trees down, bridges collapsed, roads separated. At least two deaths are blamed on the storms. Fifteen shelters in nine counties have opened as nearly 10,000 homes are under evacuation orders. More than 36,000 customers are without power. Some roads are impassable. Congressional lawmakers are meeting with federal regulators after Silicon Valley Bank was shut down, leaving some companies scrambling to survive. NPR's Amy Held reports on continued fallout of the biggest bank collapse since the 2008 financial crisis. Silicon Valley Bank did business with some of the biggest tech companies, Shopify, Pinterest and Fitbit. Roku, the TV streaming service, says the bank held about a quarter of its cash and equivalents to the tune of $487 million. It does not know how much it will get back. Thousands of scrappier startups had their money tied up with the bank, too, jeopardizing their very survival. Some have no way to pay staff now. California regulators closed SVB on Friday after spooked clients rushed to withdraw on news of a losing bond sale. The FDIC has taken over, but much remains unknown, including how much clients can recoup. As lawmakers and regulators work to contain what can be a contagious cycle. Amy Held, NPR News. Today marks the third anniversary of the World Health Organization declaring a coronavirus pandemic. NPR's Jason Bobian reports COVID continues to spread and has caused nearly 7 million deaths around the world. The World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic on March 11th of 2020 as the virus was spreading rapidly. In a matter of weeks, the so-called novel coronavirus had gone from being detected in China to turning up in more than 100 countries. At that moment, the head of the WHO, said that nations still had a chance to prevent widespread community transmission. That, however, didn't happen. COVID swept across the globe, infecting hundreds of millions of people. By 2021, COVID-19 had killed more Americans than the 1918 flu, making COVID the deadliest pandemic in U.S. history. And the WHO continues to consider it a public health emergency globally. Jason Bobian, NPR News. Daylight saving time returns at 2 a.m. tomorrow morning when most of the country sets its clocks ahead one hour as standard time comes to an end. The transition is official as of 2 a.m., except for people in Hawaii and parts of Arizona. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Local startups are reeling following the shutdown of the Silicon Valley Bank. 
Stephanie Rolick is with the networking group Startup Boston. She says Silicon Valley was more than just a bank. Silicon Valley Bank is just very tightly knit into the Boston startup community. They host a lot of events. They're always a lending ear to really offer advice to founders, to make intros for VCs and founders. They really became a pivotal role in the Boston startup community. On Monday, companies will be able to gain access to their funds that are insured by the feds. Track inspections are underway after MB, the MBTA forced trains to slow down on all the subway lines. Speeds are back to normal on some sections of the red, blue, and orange lines, but not on the green line and not on the Mattapan trolley. Regular speeds on the entire MBTA subway and trolley system will not resume until track inspections are completed. MBTA Interim General Manager Jeff Gonneville ordered speed reductions on Thursday after learning about problems with the documentation on recent safety tests. Drivers are being asked to be on the lookout for some unusual pedestrians this spring. As the weather gets warmer, amphibians start their migration to bodies of water, and that might require them to crawl across roadways. The Division of Fisheries and Wildlife State Herpetologist Mike Jones says drivers should avoid trips on wet roads, especially at night. A lot of our amphibians are so small that even an eagle-eyed driver can't see them. And if you have a windy, rainy night and there's debris on the roads, like sticks or leaves, you will have a hard time telling an amphibian from some of that material. There are 20 species of amphibians in Massachusetts. Most of them are frogs and salamanders. In sports, Red Sox lost to the Twins 4-3 in preseason play today. The Bruins beat the Red Wings 3-2 at the Garden. The Celtics are in Atlanta for a game against the Hawks tonight. Our forecast, a slight chance of snow and rain tonight with a low around 30. Partly sunny tomorrow near 40. A chance of rain on Monday. It'll be cloudy low 40s and rain then snow on Tuesday, upper 30s, 37 now in Boston. WBUR supporters include the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. We're going to start today hearing about the widespread flooding in parts of California. That's because of what meteorologists call atmospheric rivers. These are plumes of tropical moisture that dump large amounts of rain, and they've been pummeling parts of the state. In northern California, some areas have even been experiencing snowfall. Humboldt County recently declared a state of emergency due to the storms. We wanted to learn more about how all this is affecting residents, so we've called Humboldt County Sheriff William Hansel, who declared a local state of emergency earlier this week, and he is with us now. Sheriff, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Michelle. It's good to be on your program. So you've been sheriff for six years. You were born and raised in the area. Have you ever seen anything like this? I have not. This is an unprecedented storm system that has really caused a lot of havoc in our county. Talk a little bit about what you're seeing and, and experiencing there. So if you're not familiar with Humboldt County, we're in northwest corner of the state. It is uh, really geographically diverse. We got the ocean, we got the, the redwoods, the tallest trees in the world, and we have a sparse population. It's, it's, a, it's a county the size of Connecticut, um, but we only have 135,000 people. We have two major highways going through it. And so when the storm came in, you know, we were initially going to account for maybe one or two feet of snow. We got eight mm. feet up in our mountains and our hills. Mm. This is what you said in the uh, declaring this a local state of emergency. And you were, 
You're pretty clear about it. In the announcement you wrote, or your office wrote, consecutive major winter storms have resulted in a large accumulation of snow, impassable roadways, downed trees, disrupted utility services, damaged and flooded roadways, mudslides, damaged structures, and dead livestock. These impacts exhausting and exceeding available county resources. So, so pretty clear. Yes. What, what, Absolutely. Does, does that mean that there are people you can't get to? Like, can you communicate with residents? Like, if they need help, do they even have a way to tell you? So sometimes they don't. Now, like, we're experiencing a case today, actually, it started yesterday, where we, we got a call that, that there's a residence in a certain part of our county that was uh, isolated. They haven't, their loved ones haven't heard from them in days. The power service in that area is cut off, so the cell signals are cut off. These people live off the grid. And so we spent the better part of all yesterday basically using our tracked snowcat vehicle, you know, trying to access this person's roadway. They live five miles in. We're only able to get three miles yesterday because of all the down trees and the heavy snow. So we're calling in bulldozers. We're calling in more resources to try and, and get to these people because we really don't know. And the scary thing is, you know, there may be further casualties we're going to find in the coming days when the snow does melt and people can get to their loved ones because, you know, with the accumulation of snow and now the rain, it is going to cause some structure failures and some roof collapses. So before I let you go, Sheriff, do you mind if I ask, how are you? Humboldt County is really unique. This is the third uh, state of emergency we've we've gone through over the last three months. We've had our major earthquake in December. We had severe winter weather storms, uh, strong winds, mudslides in January, and now this February, March winter storm. There hasn't been a time where we've declared, you know, three local emergencies and been ratified by the state, state emergencies in a period of three months. Uh, so we're rattled, to be honest. And, um, you know, there's a lot of our guys that have just have worked for weeks on end, uh, with no time off, and we're tired, essentially. And our Office of Emergency Services is still recovering from the pandemic. But I'm thankful I have great people that work with me. I have an awesome team. And like I said, it's all about the relationships. Our fire departments, our state Office of Emergency Services, the federal resources have really come together. And I'm really thankful for the teamwork that we can provide, you know, the services to our, our residents here. That was William Hunsell. He's the sheriff for Humboldt County, California. He manages emergency services for the county there. Sheriff, thank you so much for joining us. My best wishes to you and to your team and all the people you're trying to take care of. Michelle, I really appreciate it. Hope you have a good weekend. Now we're going to take another look at that scathing Department of Justice report on the Louisville Police Department. The report followed a two-year investigation prompted by the police killing of Breonna Taylor, and it described a litany of disturbing practices. Practices the DOJ said the Louisville Police Department employed selectively, mainly against black people, but also against quote-unquote vulnerable people throughout the city. Kristen Clark is the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Justice. In that role, she leads the department's efforts to enforce civil rights laws across the country and was involved in the DOJ's efforts to investigate the Louisville Metro Police Department. And she's with us now to talk more about the findings and what needs to happen now. Assistant Attorney General Clark, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. During the press conference to announce your findings, you said, quote, our investigation found that the police department and city government failed to adequately protect and serve the people of Louisville, breached the public's trust, and discriminated against black people through unjustified stops, searches, and arrests. The police used excessive force, subjecting people to unlawful strikes, tasings, and canine bites. And it, of course, goes on. Before you entered government, you had a long career in civil rights law. 
given that, is there something in particular that stood out to you from this investigation? Yeah. You know, the, the problems are extensive. One thing that really stood out here are issues that we encountered with respect to the treatment of people with behavioral health disabilities. This is the first time that the Justice Department has used the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, to find that the way that the police responds to people who are experiencing a crisis is unlawful uh, and discriminatory. It turns out that in Louisville, they have a pilot mobile crisis team. They have experts that could accompany police officers out when someone is experiencing an, a, a crisis. And instead, what we have found is that they almost exclusively rely on an ordinary 911 law enforcement response in these situations, which are dangerous and risky and puts people with disabilities, particularly behavioral health disabilities, in harm's way. So I get that. I do want to talk about what should happen next and what the future holds. And I do recognize that you said that over the course of this investigation, which started in 2021, that you had access to a lot of information. You interviewed people, you went on ride-alongs, you had access to, you know, hours of body-worn camera footage and so forth. Because this is a pattern and practice investigation, you are trying to determine if there's a pattern and practice of a certain kind of conduct. But I am interested in whether you have any thoughts about why a department gets to the point where there is this kind of conduct, given especially that there has been scrutiny of law enforcement conduct for years now. There is a lot of research available to police leaders, law enforcement leaders about best practices. I don't know if the report sheds light on this, but I guess I'm still interested in this question of how does it get to this point? Policies, training, accountability. These are kind of the core criteria that you need to really get this right. And one without the other, you know, can result in the kind of situation that we've encountered in Louisville. You need strong policies, you need the training to back it up, and you need accountability. So when there are missteps, when there is misconduct, when officers run afoul of the law and the rules, there's immediate corrective action that can take place. And our goal with the consent decree that follows here will help ensure that some of those systems that weren't in place in Louisville are there going forward. Can you give us an example of what some of those are? Well, one of the things that we're going to really focus on in the consent decree concerns search warrants. We found that many officers were issuing warrants under dangerous conditions, issuing them at night. Uh, we're not knocking and announcing. And going forward, our consent decree will require reforms to address many of the issues here. You know, there's this ongoing story about issues like this. When atrocities like this happen, what you often hear is there are the rules and then there's how it really is. You know, there's what people are taught in the academy and then there's what they're taught on the street when they're in the course of doing their jobs. How do you ensure that those things are in alignment, you know, because you hear this over and over again. There's in the case of George Floyd, the, the person who's most culpable in his death was the training officer. So I'm just interested in how you bring what the goals of the department, what people are taught, what the rules are, what are considered to be best practices. How do you actually bring that into alignment to actual practice? Do you have a mechanism for that? This is really uh, now turning to the road ahead and the consent decree that uh, we are going to work to institute. And a, a few things about that. One, uh, the consent decree will have real teeth. 
and require that this department make some hard changes in order to ensure that we don't see a repeat of the kinds of problems that we've encountered here, including the discrimination against Black people, discrimination against people with disabilities and more. An independent monitor will provide oversight every step of the way to make sure that the police department is staying on track and hitting the goals. Well, before we let you go, this report arrives and these investigations are taking place at a time when many parts of the country are experiencing um, an increase in violence. Um, protestations to the contrary, many of these increases are taking place in jurisdictions of all different types, uh, jurisdictions led by Republicans, jurisdictions led by Democrats. But are you concerned at all that the strides that you hope to make as you describe it, constitutional policing will be thwarted in part by public fear. Here, we're focused on a very specific problem that also relates to public safety. And when you don't uh, respect people's civil and constitutional rights, you undermine the end goal of ensuring public safety. So, you know, that is part of the context of what we are, are dealing with here and wrestling with here. It also underscores why there's no cookie cutter approach to this work. The consent decree that uh, we put in place here will be very mindful of what's happening on the ground in Louisville and all of the issues that this community is uniquely dealing with and wrestling with. That is Kristen Clark. She's the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights at the Department of Justice, and she spoke to us from her office there. Uh, Assistant Attorney General Clark, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. On 90.9 WBUR, good afternoon. I'm Susan Levy. Coming up at 6 on It's Been a Minute on this Oscars weekend, a look at the state of the film industry. Also a deep dive into the Netflix movie Blonde and what it gets wrong about Marilyn Monroe. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com and Worcester Cultural Coalition. The American Guild of Organists presents a member recital tomorrow at Blessed Sacrament Church. WorcesterCulture.org. Lend us your ears anywhere with the new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download or update in your app store now. WBUR supporters include the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made in the front porch and center stage, TheMusicEmporium.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. In California, intense winter storms are pushing through the state again, and more are forecast. Overnight, the Pajaro River breached, and officials are warning thousands of people to evacuate. The levee broke amid heavy rains and strong gusty winds. Monterey County officials say they have conducted dozens of rescues from the area. Mount Merape in Indonesia erupted today. It's the country's most active volcano, and it unleashed clouds of hot ash covering several villages. No casualties have been reported. And former Vikings football coach Bud Grant has died. He took the Vikings to the Super Bowl four times in eight years, but they lost each time. Bud Grant was 95. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Pew Charitable Trusts, telling stories behind data and trends that shape our world today through its podcast, After the Fact. Learn more at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K-12 learning. More at edutopia.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. After years of hostility, Iran and Saudi Arabia have agreed to reestablish relations. This tentative peace was brokered by China after it was announced that officials from the three countries had met in Beijing for several days prior to negotiating the deal. This announcement from the three countries marks a new beginning of diplomatic relations between the two Middle Eastern powers and the reopening of embassies in Tehran and Riyadh within the next two months. China's involvement in the deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia comes as a surprise and concern to some, as U.S. relations with Saudi Arabia and China have been strained in recent years. Joining us to talk about this is Joost Hilterman, the International Crisis Group's Middle East and Northern Africa Program Director. He leads the organization's research, analysis, policy advice, and advocacy in and about the region. And he's with us now. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. If I could just start with a sort of a narrower question, does this deal have any impact on the United States? I mean, if so, what? Uh, that depends on how it is interpreted, of course. I think the main impact is, is to the parties to the, to the conflict, Iran and Saudi Arabia. They have agreed to reestablish uh, diplomatic missions, which also means they're hoping to uh, lower the temperature in the region, which has been pretty high in the last six, seven years. And so that, that is good news. I think if there's any uh, impact in the United States, it's really about the role of China in particular. The White House has come out and said that uh, it, uh, it's, it's a quite okay with the, with the fact that they are reestablishing diplomatic relations. But it's also clear that the United States could never have brokered this because it, it cannot speak to Iran directly. So if Iran and Saudi Arabia wanted to go ahead with this, they needed another intermediary, and that clearly uh, was China. Now, is the United States happy that China is uh, starting to present, profile itself in the Middle East as a potential broker of relations uh, in, in, with a history where it has had huge and growing economic and commercial uh, investments and interests uh, and is now starting to dabble in the political sphere? I'm, I'm sure that there are some concerns about the rising power of China that is starting to manifest itself in the, in the Middle East as well, on the political uh, level. China's desire to expand its reach politically is known, but what do you make of Saudi Arabia's desire to kind of, or what seems to be a desire to expand their partnership with China? So, so but there's also a different way to look at it, which is that Saudi Arabia wanted to normalize diplomatic relations with Iran. And so how would it do that? Who would it, and of course, this has been in the work. I think the Saudis, so, so they had to bring in someone, it was China, and that made sense for the Saudis because they want to have much stronger commercial relations with China, one, and two, they want to have some kind of other outside party other than the United States that is having their back in a way, because Saudi Arabia is very nervous about the state of the region, relations between Iran and Israel in particular, and is not trusting the United States to always have its back. You know, speaking of that, there have been 
whispers of uh, a potential normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Um, will this new deal with Iran, in, in your view, hamper those efforts? No, to the contrary. I think uh, Saudi Arabia would not be able to make a normalization deal with Israel without having covered its flank with Iran. So this was an, actually an essential element. Uh, for the Iranians, it's quite all right. They don't want an Israeli military presence in the Gulf, but they, they don't have an in-principle objection, as far as I understand them, to uh, Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates or other Arab states having uh, a relationship with Israel. But there are quite a few obstacles to Saudi Arabia normalizing its relations with Israel. It's still far from that. All I'm saying is that I don't, don't think Saudi Arabia would have gone ahead without some kind of relationship with Iran first. I want to raise one other issue. The, the civil war in Yemen has been going on since 2014. Iran and Saudi Arabia both have uh, different stakes in this fight. D do you think that this agreement between the two means that we could see an end or to that conflict? Bringing the war to an end, there's different wars. Um, one war is between Saudi Arabia and the Houthi rebels who control most of the, the country. Of course, the Houthis are supported by Iran. So the, the normalization of diplomatic relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran, if it proceeds, uh, could have eventually the effect of the Houthis reaching a deal with Saudi Arabia and vice versa. But that won't end the war because, in fact, there is a legitimate uh, government in Yemen, which is very weak and very much fragmented among different parties, with even strong disagreements about whether Yemen should be a single country or two countries. So uh, even if the Saudis and the Houthis come to an agreement that won't end the war, we still need to be a political process that brings the Houthis in the north together with the, other, with the legitimate government and the other parties. And who is going to, to guide that? Uh, once the Saudis are out of the war, they, they may not have the appetite for that. And this is something a concern that certainly uh, the parties uh, have. That was Joost Hilterman, the International Crisis Group's Middle East and Northern Africa Program Director. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's been just over a month since earthquakes devastated parts of Turkey and Syria, and the dimensions of the tragedy have become all too clear. Tens of thousands killed, even more injured, millions now homeless. But now we want to focus on how the disaster has been handled and what that might say about the leadership of one central figure. I'm talking about Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. That's because Turkey has become a major player in global politics. It's a member of the NATO alliance, and Erdogan was a key figure in negotiating a deal to get grain shipments out of Ukraine. Ukraine last year, but his tenure has been marked by increasing controversy. He's been accused of taking on ever more autocratic tendencies, and he was the subject of a coup attempt in 2016. Given all this, we wanted to hear more about what his history as a leader might tell us about what we might see next as the country faces upcoming elections, even as it tries to recover from the earthquake. We called Sener Chaptai for this because he's been following Erdogan for years. He's the author of Erdogan's Empire, Turkey and the Politics of the Middle East, and he's here with us now. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining a pleasure. Us. Thank you for hosting me. Let me just start with the news of the week. On Friday, President Erdogan announced that elections in Turkey will be held in May, May 14th. I think that is a month earlier than scheduled. I mean, even as we said, you know, 
the country is still recovering from this devastating event. And, you know, millions of people are displaced. They don't even have homes. So how do you read this decision? It's a month before the constitutionally prescribed deadline of June 18th. And I think President Erdogan has decided that uh, the earlier he does the elections, it's the better it is for him. Because uh, Turkey suffered from its worst natural disaster in history. Thousands have died. I think the country is now still in uh, the stage of greed, trying to come to terms with loss. And next, uh, of course, what will follow is anger. So President Erdogan is going to face criticism for relief and rescue efforts and construction and corruption and all of that. And he's decided that uh, he just wants to move forward with the elections as soon as possible before grief turns into anger and that he could be buried under the tsunami of anger if it does. Has the earthquake shifted things for him from what you can tell? It has. So President Erdogan, I've followed his career for about two decades. He's built a brand in Turkey, an interesting one. It's a Janice-faced politician, right? He's delivered growth for about 15 years, lifted people out of poverty, increased incomes, access to the pie. All of that is great. And he has a base, including many people, poor people, he has lifted out of poverty that loves him. But he's also got a dark and a liberal side. He's a nativist populist politician. He's brutalized, cracked down on demographics, unlikely to vote for him. Mm. So he's got a, a chunk of the country that loves him and a chunk of the country that simply loads him. So I would say his brand over the last uh, two decades was that uh, he was seen as an autocratic politician, but his brand was also that was that he would take care of you. He was efficient and effective. So it was kind of like this father figure in Turkish politics. And the earthquake has completely bookended that. Mm. While disaster hit, the autocratic patriarchal figure, President Erdogan, was not there to take care of the citizens. And I think it's going to be hard for him to rebuild his image going forward. You wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs this month, and you wrote, quote, Erdogan will shift posture and seek to once again instill fear in the citizenry, trying to appear strong and in command. You added that, for example, during a public address, Erdogan chided citizens for spreading fake news in an indignant tone. What What, what is that all about? Like, what is he trying to accomplish here? For Erdogan, you know, his wrath is as real as his compassion. And I think over the years, while those who oppose him have come to loathe him. He's built a base constituted by conservative voters, also attracted to his nativist populist message who simply love him. So I was really surprised that in the aftermath of this biggest disaster in Turkey's history where thousands died and thousand others were waiting under the rubble to be pulled out alive, he chided citizens for criticizing him and his performance. And I think that's the angry Erdogan that's perhaps uh, we're going to see going forward. He's realized that if he doesn't double down on autocracy, he's not going to win the election. But just, forgive me, just playing devil's advocate here, this was a a tragedy of enormous dimensions. I mean, would not that have strained the resources of most countries? Absolutely. I think that a disaster of this proportion, perhaps no government could have handled response uh, to it in a way that, you know, relief would be there in hours after disaster struck. But in Turkey, It took 48 hours for the government's relief agencies to appear. NGOs run by civilians did a better job than publicly funded agencies with billion dollar budgets. And here's what happened. Erdogan, when he came to power after consolidating, gutted out many of Turkey's institutions. I was going to ask you about that. What you have just said here is kind of at the crux of what, in fact, a lot of our reporters saw on the scene, which is that how is it that these NGOs 
privately funded groups, even sometimes informal, you know, networks, you know, family groups were able to get on the scene faster than government funded agencies. And in fact, I mean, is it my understanding that Turkey has the largest standing army in the Middle East, right? Doesn't it have like a million men under arms? It's the second largest army in NATO. Uh, It also is a country with a nearly trillion dollar size economy, uh, massive institutions. But while consolidating power, especially Mm -hmm. in the last decade, Erdogan has gutted out many institutions. Take, for instance, Turkey's equivalent of FEMA which is called Afad in Turkey. This is Relief and Rescue Agency, Emergency Disaster Response Agency, right? So instead of putting engineers, civil engineers, rescue engineers, earthquake engineers, Turkey is an earthquake-prone country, and sadly, uh, to run this agency, Erdogan appointed loyalists. And Turkey is an advanced case of what happens to countries when a nativist populist leader takes over. So the leader not only demonizes those who don't vote for him, but also guts out institutions and turns, turns them into zombie institutions. If the institution doesn't fall to him, the leader will basically appoint loyalists or pass legislation to diminish its power. And that's what happened to Red Crescent Society in Turkey, which has been a traditional agency in Turkey that delivers relief in case of earthquake and other disasters. That agency completely disappeared because Erdogan didn't like it and he set up his own. So. The sad part of it is that after the earthquake struck, neither the Red Cross was there, nor the new agency Erdogan had set up there. And citizens were on their own. Civil society stepped in. And I think the takeaway for citizens is going to be that Erdogan, the powerful, autocratic, father-like figure of politics, is not really the father that's taking care of the citizens. What is driving Erdogan at this point? Has he changed over the course of time? I mean, he's been in power in one form or another for some two decades now. What's driving him? So what animates President Erdogan at this stage is political survival. He has to win elections at whatever cost. He's afraid that if he loses elections, he'll be prosecuted or even persecuted, he and his family members. And therefore, he'll try to win elections by hook or by crook. So that means doubling down on autocracy. That means launching new culture wars to polarize. That means going after vulnerable groups, uh, women, LGBTQ in Turkey other minorities. That also means that he is going to uh, do whatever is necessary to win the elections. There are foreign policy components of it. He's been cultivating good ties with rich Gulf monarchies and Russia, from which financial inflows have come to Turkey, helping with the economy. So I would say for President Erdogan, what is at stake is Erdogan's own career. Hmm. So it sounds to me like these elections in May really will be worth watching. They'll be historic because Erdogan is the inventor of nativist populist politics, a model that has been copied by leaders elsewhere in Europe and closer to home. And I think historic because this will be the bookend of this kind of politics in the world. I think Erdogan is the best executor of this kind of politics globally. And historic also because either 20 years of Erdogan rule in Turkey will come to an end or he'll stay in power forever so long as he's alive. That is Soner Chaptai. He's the director of the Turkish Research Program at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. That's a Washington-based think tank. His latest book is A Sultan in Autumn, Erdogan Faces Turkey's Uncontainable Forces. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to NPR News.
A Texas man is suing three women claiming they illegally helped his now ex-wife get abortion pills last summer to end her pregnancy. He's seeking millions of dollars in damages in a case that could have implications beyond the three defendants. NPR Sarah McCammon is following this, and she's with us now to tell us more about it. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Michelle. What exactly does this lawsuit claim? So the man, Marcus A. Silva from Galveston County, Texas, claims that last July, his then-wife discovered she was pregnant by him, and because abortion is illegal in Texas, she reached out for help to the three women. He claims they, quote, conspired with her to obtain abortion pills and end the pregnancy at home, and he's suing each of the women in civil court for at least a million dollars. Now, the Silva's divorce was finalized just last month, but they were in the process of divorcing when this occurred last summer. And in one text message contained in court documents that were exchanged with two of the defendants, the woman worries that if she told Silva about the pregnancy, quote, he would use it to try to stay with me. So tell us just a bit more about, I guess, the bigger picture here and where this fits into the kind of the larger abortion issue. Well, it's believed to be the first case of its kind in the aftermath of last summer's Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. And Silva's lawyers are very clear that they hope this case will have implications well beyond these three defendants and beyond Texas. I spoke to one of the lawyers, Peter Breen, of the Thomas More Society, which is a conservative Catholic legal group. We intend to get further well beyond uh, those who may have directly provided the pill to the to the mother of the the child. Uh, Certainly, we want to get to this whole network that brought about this illegal abortion in the first place. And Breen told me that he hopes to use what's known as the discovery process in the lawsuit, which gives lawyers an opportunity to uncover more evidence to go after anyone who might have been part of what he describes as the chain of people involved in distributing abortion pills. Breen says that could eventually mean manufacturers, pharmacies and organizations that help people get abortions. So, Sarah, you remember the SBA. This is that state law we've heard so much about. Right. Is this lawsuit connected to that? I know it sounds a lot like that, but it is not directly connected. That law enables people to file civil lawsuits against anyone who provides an abortion or helps someone else get one. The lead attorney in this case is Jonathan Mitchell, a well-known conservative lawyer with a long history of anti-abortion efforts, including helping to craft SB 8. But this lawsuit, while it is going after people accused of helping someone get an abortion, it does so by accusing the women of violating Texas's wrongful death and murder statutes, not SB 8. So has there been any response from the defendants? No public statement so far from the three women named as defendants. But reproductive rights groups tell me they're looking closely at this lawsuit. They're taking it very seriously. Elizabeth Myers is an attorney in Dallas who represents several Texas-based groups that assist people seeking abortions with things like money and travel. Anyone trying to help a Texan access care, particularly in the state of Texas, is at really serious legal risk. And my strong suspicion is that it will further drive all assistance into a space um, that is very secretive and fear-filled. Another concern I've been hearing is that while this is a civil suit, it describes the abortion repeatedly using words like criminal and murder, and it points to criminal statutes in Texas that are now in effect after the Supreme Court decision. Peter Breen, Silva's attorney, says they're trying to make the case that abortion should be treated as murder, and he hopes that Texas prosecutors will take note. And they say they are ready to file more lawsuits in other jurisdictions or other states if the opportunity arises. That is NPR Sarah McCammon. Sarah, thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy. Coming up at 6 on It's Been a Minute on this Oscars weekend to look at the state of the film industry. Also a deep dive into the Netflix movie Blonde and what it gets wrong about Marilyn Monroe. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Start your Sunday tomorrow morning with 90.9 WBUR. You'll get the latest on how hospital ethics boards are being invoked when a patient requires a medical exemption to an abortion ban. You'll also play the Sunday Puzzle with Puzzle Master Will Shorts. Weekend Edition Sunday starts at 8 a.m. 37 degrees in Boston now at 539. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The U.K.'s defense ministry says a Russian paramilitary group controlled by the Kremlin has seized most of the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut, site of the longest and bloodiest battle in Russia's war on Ukraine. In France, protests continued today for the seventh day of peaceful demonstrations against President Emmanuel Macron's plans to change the retirement age from 62 to 64. The country's Senate is reviewing the bill and could vote on the text by tomorrow night. And the planned debut launch of the world's first 3D printed rocket from Florida was scrapped today over fuel temperature concerns. The uncrewed rocket's test to see if it can make it to low Earth orbit will be rescheduled. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, publishers of the Kids Count Data Book, providing data on the well-being of children, youth, and families. Available at AECF.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. No matter who takes home those gold Academy Award statues on Sunday night, critic Bob Mondello says 2023 will be remembered as a watershed year for Asian actors at the Oscars. With four acting nominations going to Asian performers, a full 20% of the total, the Motion Picture Academy has recognized more Asian actors in one year than at any time in its history. What's happening? Three of the nominations are from the year's frontrunner for Best Picture, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Michelle Yeoh and Kei Hui Kwan are Best Actress and Best Supporting Actor nominees, respectively, as the film's multiverse-hopping laundromat owners. I'm not your husband. I'm here because we need your help. Very busy today. Uh, no time to help you. And Stephanie Su, who plays their daughter and nemesis. The universe is so much bigger than you realize. Is a nominee for Best Supporting Actress. Su will be competing in that category with Hong Chow, who plays the best friend of Brendan Fraser's title character in The Whale. I really hate you for putting me through this again. You know that. Got that 
was awful. It was awful for me, too. Yeah. It's been a long wait for Asian performers generally. Only one Asian actress, Merle Oberon, had ever been nominated for a leading role before 2023, way back in 1935. And notably, her South Asian background wasn't widely known until her death in the 1970s. The path to Oscar recognition hasn't been smooth for the currently nominated Asian artists who came later. Both Michelle Yeoh and Kei Hui Kwan first appeared on screen in 1984, but Yeoh's career in martial arts films like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon didn't get her mentioned at awards time. Kwan pretty much disappeared after child stardom, though he certainly had a memorable debut in 1984's biggest box office hit, wow, holy smoke. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Short round, step on it. Even back then, you'd find Asian names among the army of digitizers for any blockbuster, but Short Round is right. Hold on to your potatoes. Nominated Asian artists this year start at the very top. There's Everything Everywhere's writer-director Daniel Kwan, who is half of the directing duo known as Daniels with Daniel Scheinert. Also, Remains of the Day novelist Kazuo Ishiguro for his screenplay for Living, and Domi Shi, who directed Pixar's animated feature Turning Red. Are you a werewolf? No! What? He's a red panda! Sick. You're so floppy! You're so floppy! While 2023 may be a watershed year for Asian artists, in other respects, it's a step back in the Academy's trek toward diversity, with no black actors nominated for lead performances and no women nominated as featured directors, there are still corners of the multiverse that need exploring. I'm Bob Mandello. St. Patrick's Day is next Friday, and yes, we know it's a bigger deal here than in Ireland. The parades, the parties, lots and lots of inappropriately green everything, beer, bagels, we get it. But maybe it's time to up our game. And could we not with the corned beef and cabbage already? Not that there's anything wrong with that, but what about something better? For some inspiration on how to elevate our St. Patrick's Day offerings, we called Dervila O'Flynn, the head chef at Ballymaloo House. That's a family-run hotel and restaurant in the countryside of Southern Ireland. Ballymaloo has been serving homegrown, locally sourced food for decades, and they've become an internationally recognized destination for foodies. And Chef O'Flynn is with us now to hopefully tell us how we can get beyond the corned beef and cabbage. Chef, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on. So before we dive in, am I right that in America, we we kind of take the St. Patrick's thing a bit far? Would that be accurate? <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't um, been at any parades in the States for St. Patrick's Day. So my memory of them in Dublin, where I'm from, were rainy days. <laughs> Um, and days off from school. And maybe it's a day when you have a break from Lent, the Catholic tradition of abstaining. So you could eat chocolate oh, on St. Patrick's Day okay. for a day. Yeah, that sounds good. How would you characterize Irish food for people who aren't familiar? What what, what would you say? Are there some key flavors, ingredients? What, what do you think is sort of characterizes it, if there's a way to say describe that? Um, at Ballymaloo, we've been very lucky to have followed the ethos that Myrtle Allen, who opened Ballymaloo many years ago, we try and follow her ethos, which was always farm to fork before it was even fashionable. So she would rear pigs on her farm, which we do now, and we would serve meat and fish from the local area. So we have a good tradition of a free range pork, um, which turns into lovely bacon, which would be cooked on St. Patrick's Day in many households or we would have some lovely Irish stew which is made from lamb and 
when that's made well, it is better than anything. So I think it's about using your ingredients and cooking them well and giving them a bit of love. So if you're cooking cabbage to either stir fry it or to cook it in a little bit of water, a little bit of butter, salt and pepper, and just cook it until it's al dente, rather than stewing it for hours and boiling water. Stewing it until it turns into, it turns into... (laughs) Grey. (laughs) Grey. How did you get interested in cooking? Do you mind if I ask? How did you, how did you get interested in cooking and how did you become acquainted with this approach of this locally sourced, you know, farm to table way? Oh, well, I'm, well, I suppose I was in, I'm from Dublin and I did home economics in school. And I guess my teacher gave me a bit of encouragement. And also I loved, I loved to bake rather than do my homework. So, um, <laughs> and my dream was to go to Ballymaloo. Darina Allen, who started the cookery school, was beginning to become a, um, a celebrity on Irish television. And um, I heard about it and came for an interview to work there one summer. And I stayed and I did the cookery course there. There's a fabulous 12-week cookery course that Darina hosts three times a year on, uh, on her 100-acre organic farm. Then I worked in the kitchen and went away and did various things and came back five years ago to become the head chef. So it's been a just a bit of a passion from the beginning. So um, when you travel, and I know you, you know, you do, do you feel like you're facing headwinds around like Irish cuisine, the idea that it's only, you know, bangers and mash and shepherd pie and corned beef? Do you feel like you have some sort of stereotypes to overcome when it comes to the, the quality of the food that is available? Um A little bit, I suppose. Um, It's getting a lot better. I think we are producing a lot of brilliant chefs in Ireland at the moment. So I think we're up there with some of the British chefs or, you know, more locally British chefs or um, Dutch. And uh, we've had a bit of connection with the Dutch um, because we're involved in a a Euro chef association. So we would be talking to various chefs around Europe as well. So I think we are getting our say on the map. So if people wanted to, um, if they're not lucky enough to get to Ballymaloo for St. Patrick's Day and they would like to try something at home, what would you recommend? I would suggest maybe a potato and leek soup because that would be a very simple thing and that can be made ahead. The Irish stew I think is fantastic because that is even better the next day. If you make it the day before, it's the nicest thing. So the important thing is to to order thick chops so they need to be you know, a good half an inch or an inch and to cook it slowly in the bottom of the oven. So is this lamb or beef that we're going with? This is lamb. lamb This is lamb. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm caught up now. So we get our chops. They have to be... We get our chops. About an inch thick. And we kind of layer them in the pan with carrots, um, some onions or shallots, some thyme leaf, chicken stock. And you cook that slowly and then about a half an hour before they're ready, or even if you were to make that the day before you want it, the next day you would um, peel and evenly cut your potatoes about the size of a mandarin orange or smaller and um, steam them on top of your your stew with a lid on and give them a half an hour and then they have cooked in the lovely juices of the stew. And that's really, really gorgeous. Mm, that sounds great. What, what about for our vegetarian friends? What do we have for them? We would do a little um, cake with um, maybe some, I know they're not Irish so much, but maybe some lentils or cannellini beans and some kale, which we grow a lot of now. Do you eat a lot of kale? Please. Is it as popular? It's very popular here. Excuse me, chef, I am black, first of all. I'm an (laughs) African-American, so we invented kale. (laughs) 
Did you? I'm okay. Sorry. Well, we God. kind of did. I didn't really, <laughs> did you? you know, not really, but kind of. I should know. <laughs> greens. Greens. We all love our kales, greens. don't we? Greens. Collards, greens, the, all greens. Greens. All greens. We do our greens. Yeah. Greens, turnip and, greens, ca- even the carrot yes. tops we cook sometimes. Cavaloneros, all those lovely kales. Exactly. So a little um, lentil or cannellini bean cake with some kale through it, which I love. Um, so you would cook your lentils or cannellini beans or whichever beans you like and bind them together with a little um, husk called psyllium husk. Hmm, interesting. Which is you can use instead of egg, which is super. It's a, it's a binder. Okay. And then fry it in the pan. Wow. In a little cake. Um, and then you could make a lovely little mushroom cream, either if you wanted to keep it vegan with coconut cream or with just a vegetarian stock. That sounds and, amazing. Yeah. That was Derbala O'Flynn. She's the head chef at Ballymaloo House. And we're talking about how to elevate our St. Patrick's Day menu. Chef O'Flynn, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for having me on. And finally today, Miley Cyrus has been in the public eye for nearly two decades. She skyrocketed to fame at 14, playing Hannah Montana on the Disney Channel. Since leaving the show in 2011, she's released eight albums. Her latest, Endless Summer Vacation, features the smash hit Flowers. Flowers was the number one song in the world for six weeks, but The Guardian's acting deputy music director, Shad Souza, was not impressed. Flowers, I found a little underwhelming, but yeah, it is this gigantic hit, like her biggest hit ever, I think, and very comparable to her kind of 2013 heyday. But I did find it really interesting that like the final song on the record is a demo version of Flowers. Paint my nails cherry red Match the roses that you left No remorse No regret I forgive every word you say I was listening to it and I was like this makes this song sound really sad. And I liked that kind of Almost like going back to it at the end and being like, whoa, like maybe this song was actually super depressing. And I did quite like that duality. Let's crash a wedding tonight, get drunk by the light, then I'll pick a fight to make up on the floor of your own. There's one really great ballad right in the middle called You. I got some baggage, let's do some damage. I think it's really, really strong. I think it's quite sad. Like, the the whole album is very sad, which is something that I find quite appealing in. And her voice is, is so ragged and I think really sells the emotion in it. And I think You, which is kind of, it, it kind of has the rebelliousness of her earlier music, but in this weirdly mature way, which I think is a very compelling combination. It's got this kind of like, you know, 70s soul sound. We could stay like this forever. Lost in wonderland. We thought it above the clouds. Falling stupid like we're 
rose-colored lenses. I really enjoy, it has this kind of lyrical and musical nod to Total Control by the Motels, but it's kind of like an inversion of that song's theme. Looking back on a relationship and, and kind of wishing you could, you know, control someone else's feelings and that kind of thing. It's a very on-the-nose reference. Like, from first listen, it's, it's very obvious that she was probably like, let's make it sound like the, the pre-chorus from Total Control. But I, I quite like it. I think it's very charming. I'm on an island, dancing in the sun. And then there's this song towards the end called Island that I think is really, again, very sad. Like, it, I, I think it's kind of presented as kind of like a, a more upbeat track, but then the, the hook is, is really crazy. Am I stranded? is dark and tonally weird. A lot of the album to me feels like it's, you know, all the kind of like more positive songs are, are very reflective. Like I think you could read it as a breakup record, but almost like from like a long time in the future or something. Like Island, you know, it's it's this weird tonal mash of, of sad and, and nostalgic that, that I find super compelling and that you don't get a lot of in pop music, I think. What's weird and what's interesting about Miley is that nothing she does is convincing, really, in, in kind of a good way. She's kind of almost like Madonna in that way, where it's like she makes things, you know, feel like a costume, which I think can be a really good and really interesting thing. Because she is almost someone whose celebrity has always been bigger than her music. I think it gives her license to do a lot of really different things. And so while I, th I think the sound on Endless Summer Vacation, which is this kind of mix of like country and like Fleetwood Mac style rock and like a little bit of disco and that kind of thing, I think it works really well, but I don't think it's necessarily her sound and I think you know, she's probably liable to change wildly to something else next record. That was music critic Shad Souza. Endless Summer Vacation is out now.